afternoon, everybody. Just the enthusiasm was overwhelming. <laughs> we need you to take it down a few notches. <laughs> uh, so, welcome, especially if this is your first time. Uh, I was not here last week. I was wrangling about a couple of dozen little five to ten-year-olds on the jiu-jitsu mats. Um, that was a lot of fun. But my friend, my colleague Shannon was here last week, I think. How did he do? Okay. Yeah. Um, what did he, what did you guys talk about? Judges. Judges? Very cool, very cool. Well, that's, um, hopefully he brought uh, out some good stuff from the text, and uh, I really appreciate him coming and stepping in. Um, that's the way I got connected with this Bible study, by the way. Steve Wright, my friend, would have me come speak when he couldn't make it. And then eventually it got to where he had to step down, so uh, Jeff asked me to come do it. So it's really, um, you never know what God's doing through making connections and having people come. And also it gives you guys a chance to take a step back from Leviticus, where we've been plowing through for the year, and see that, oh, there's other scripture too. So <clears throat> it's good to hold that balance. <clears throat> but we are in Leviticus, and two weeks ago, we started Leviticus 20. Um, we're going to finish it today. Leviticus 20 is the end of this section in Leviticus. It's chapters 17 through 20, particularly 18, 19, 20. And Leviticus 20 is the bookend to Leviticus 18. So 18 begins with God's um, setting out that he has a different set of ethics for his people than they do in Egypt and in Canaan. And he's contrasting the behavior that he requires under his covenant with Israel in the second millennium BC, ancient Near East, contrasting that with the moralities of the Canaanites and the Egyptians at that same time in that same period. And in particular, where that comes out is in their worship and their sex. Worship and sex. Worship and sex. Those two things are intricately linked throughout all of human history. Worship and sex. And it's because those are the two things that strike to the core of who we are as people. They, 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 they go to the innermost parts of our longing. Our longing for communion with God and our longing for communion with one another. And so the, the core of intimacy centers around in every human being their, their worship and their sexuality. Even if they aren't <clears throat> cognizant of it, even if they aren't intentionally, uh, you know, it, it, when we say sex and sexuality, we always tend to, in our mind, think of that as behavior. But in scripture, it's deeper than that. Like, you, everyone is a sexual person, even people that aren't sexually active, even people that are lifelong celibates, even people that have health issues that prevent them from ever being sexually active. They're still sexual beings because sexuality is at the core of who we are. It's deeper than just the activities that we do. And so it's always important to keep that in mind that when God sets parameters for sexuality and for worship, it's not as it's commonly caricatured by people that want to knock the Bible or talk about how out of date or old fashioned it is. It's not because he's a cosmic killjoy. It's not because he's an angry God who cares what goes on in your bedroom. Well, yeah, he does care what goes on in your bedroom because he cares what goes on in your heart. Because he cares about you because you're created in his image. So this idea of God is just a big guy upstairs who's just looking down angrily 
completely uh, separates any concept of relationality from God. And it makes him out to be something completely different than what he is presented in Scripture. In Scripture, he's a God who desires to be at the center of every person's life because he is the only thing that we can serve that doesn't enslave us. In other words, he's the only being, the only cause, the only purpose, the only concept that we can willfully give ourselves to as slaves without becoming enslaved. Everything else will enslave. God is the one who, paradoxically, through slavery to him, brings freedom. And that's the whole theme of Exodus, if you were here last year, as we went through Exodus. That was the theme of that book. Well, Leviticus picks right up where Exodus left off, and it's carrying on that theme. So, when God lays out his standards for sexual holiness and worship holiness in chapter 18, then he goes in chapter 19 into social holiness. Because that's not the heart of it. The, the worship and the sexuality is, is the beginning, because it's foundational to who Israel is as a people. But then it moves into an even deeper part, which is the transformation of the society as a whole in terms of how they treat each other and how they worship God in, in spirit and in truth. So you have chapter 19, and the heart of chapter 19 is what Jesus picked up on when somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? First he cited Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because that's the starting point. And then he cited Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Then after that section that we spent three weeks on, chapter 19, because it's so all-encompassing, it's like a, it's like an a, a, a extrapolation of the Ten Commandments, basically. You missed it, go back and check the video for the audio podcast. But after spending uh, that amount of time in chapter 19, then he comes back in chapter 20 to close out how the section began and say, now, this is more than just individual morality that God's concerned about. This is corporate morality that God's concerned about because God's not just building a bunch of people with personal relationships to him. He's building a nation that for a time in history is going to stand as a theocratic entity. Theocratic means ruled by God. So for a time in history, there is going to be a, a geographically located country that is a theocracy where God himself is the one who sovereignly rules over it through the covenant that this is all a part of. And that's going to be for a time. And it's going to be very specific. And it's going to have laws and it's going to have societal norms. So this section then is now giving the law aspect of what we saw in chapter 18. Chapter 18 gave the ethical commands. Now chapter 20 is going to give the legal uh, outworking of those commands. The if you break it, this is sometimes called casuistic law. Apodictic law is you shall, you shall not. Casuistic law is if this happens, then this is how it should be treated. So now God's going to move into some casuistic laws and saying, showing how serious he is about preserving the integrity of Israel's worship and Israel's sex. Those are two things that he strongly, strongly, heavily invests in. Because those are the two ways by which his people turn from him the most. So in this section now, he starts with the things that have, it's, a, it's like a starting with the heaviest penalty and then moving down the chapter to lighter penalties. So the first things that are listed are in things that if Israel does these, and we looked at these two weeks ago, these result in the death penalty. 
It's, it's not the case that any time you broke a law, the death penalty. No, there was no death penalty for stealing. You know, in, in Victorian times in England, that was one of the main reasons people were hung or put to death was because they stole. Stealing, theft, property damage is never punished with the death penalty in Israel. What is given the death penalty in Israel are things that strike at the covenant relationship between God and his people and particularly the family and, 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 the, and the, the, the distortion or the ruining of the family. Because those are how that society is going to function. So he goes into, and we started to look at where he starts saying, first thing you're not going to do is you're not going to offer your children sacrifices to pagan gods. Now why would he have to warn them of that? Because that was a widespread practice. You don't warn somebody of something that there's no chance of them ever doing. You warn them of something that there's a high chance that they might be tempted to do. So all of these things that God tells them not to do are things that the nations were doing, whether Egypt or Canaan or both. So he's going to tell them, and the penalties are going to be stiff because his call, the call of Leviticus, if you followed along all year, the call of Leviticus is you will be holy because I am holy. In other words, you will be set apart because I am completely other. You will not have these practices in your midst. And so in order to ground that into the public consciousness of an entire people, the penalties for these things are incredibly stiff, incredibly harsh penalties. That, that in and of itself communicates to a nation, it's serious if you do these things. If the penalties were slap on the wrist, or, okay, offer this sacrifice and then go about your business, then that communicates to people that these aren't really a big priority for God. But if the penalty is, if you do this, you forfeit your life, then regardless of what you or I think about death penalty in the New Covenant and any of that, which is another issue for another time, regardless of what we think about that, what it's communicating to these people at this time was these are things of paramount significance. These are issues that are crucial these are behaviors that you will not tolerate. So this is this is where this is like God is putting Israel through boot camp. Okay? Like if you go to the military in boot camp, you know, you, you don't make your bed right, you have to do push-ups, and your whole squad has to do push-ups, or whatever. You know, you don't tie your shoes correctly, you have a crease in your collar. These little things that seem kind of insignificant, they have drastically uh, have drastic implications in terms of the penalty for them when you go to boot camp. The reason is because it's ingraining in the person, it's ingraining in the recruit, in the potential soldier, the concepts of things like authority, of being responsible for those around you, of the chain of command, all of these things that are ground into people in boot camp type situations. Well, that's similar to what God's doing with Israel throughout the period of their early history. Is he is grounding in them some things. So there are some penalties we look at, we go, God, that's harsh. And then we see in the new covenant when people break those things, when they violate those things, in the new covenant, they aren't held to this standard of death penalty. Rather, they're cut off from the church. Like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. Man takes his father's wife. Paul's Torah would say they both were put to death. Paul says, turn them out of your assembly. Put them to spiritual death with hopes that through repentance they will be restored back to spiritual life. 
So you do see this shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of how what would formerly have been capital crimes are dealt with. The story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, wherever that story originally came from. It's not original to John's Gospel, but right now it's located in John's Gospel. Um, check your footnote in your Bible if you're confused about that. But regardless, wherever that story came from, it reflects an old, old, old tradition going all the way back to the apostles that Jesus, when was presented with an incident that would have required the death penalty if Torah had been followed correctly, he actually steps in and gives mercy that's intended to transform so there's a, there's, a, there's a tension within Old and New Testament where we can see in the New Testament, because of what Jesus did, because of Jesus bearing all of these penalties, being put to death, being cut off from his people, I mean, dying childless, these are things that Jesus actually experienced literally in his own body. Because he represents and, and, and embodies all of Israel, then his experiencing those things in the New Testament, then we kind of see a shift whereby now these were what... what once were capital crimes in the theocratic nation of Israel have now taken on a, a completely different spiritual dimension and God's desire is no longer the boot camp period. His desire is that people would turn and would repent and would be transformed through the next phase of God's history of humanity, which is Him sending His Spirit into the hearts and the minds of His people to actually change them from within, which could not happen during this time. Heart, the Holy Spirit had not descended and was not given. So there's a big difference when you're reading all of that to preface to set up the fact that when we read these laws then, we don't just pick these laws and put them on a billboard and hold them up at gay pride parades. Or when a, when a pastor that we read about sins, commits adultery, we don't immediately call for him to be stoned, put to death. Right? We don't, in other words, you can't just grab a law out of the Old Testament and just say, this is what we do now. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not, that doesn't mean we pick and choose. It's not like some of these laws are valid now and some aren't. No, they were all 100% valid then, and they all have things to teach us today. Like Paul says, all Scripture is inspired. God breathed. All Scripture speaks to us. So in, in, in reading these laws, we are seeing what God required of Israel in their setting during that time period when he was establishing his theocratic kingdom for the purpose of one day bringing forth the Messiah who would then open the doors of that theocratic kingdom to the entire world and would transform people from the inside out. Which is something that the law itself, as good and as holy and as perfect as it is for what it is, could not do. Paul spends chapters talking about that in the New Testament. So, we got down to... I don't know, around verse 11 last week, I think. Well, I don't know. Um, we'll just pick it up. Uh, I'm going to just read the laws. God says, sorry, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I, the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. So, here are examples of his decrees. He's already talked about Moloch worship and child sacrifice and not to do that. Then he goes on to start with the, 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 the integrity of the family and sexuality and that intimacy. Uh, it says, if anyone curses his father or his mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother and his blood will be on his own head. Check the video from last time if you want to know what cursing means. It doesn't mean if your kid gets mad and says GD or you know, F you or something like that. It's not that. This is, that's not cussing. There's cussing. 
And then there's cursing. This is talking about cursing. And it's not talking about kids. This is to adult children of their adult parents. Okay? So just get out of your mind a kid throwing a temper tantrum. That's not what this is about. This is far deeper. And again, go watch the video from last week or listen to the podcast or week before. So he goes on to say, if anyone curses his father's mother, he must be put to death. He has cursed his father, his mother's blood will be on his own head. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. That was part of what was happening in that Jesus story. They only brought in the woman, where it was the man. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. What they have done is a perversion. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, it is wicked. Both he and they must be burned in the fire so that no wickedness will be among you. There's a question about whether that's burning alive or whether put to death and then their bodies are burned, which in the Old Testament times would have been the ultimate way of wiping someone out because they believed in the resurrection of the body, caring for the bones of the deceased, all this stuff. Regardless, super strong penalty if a man marries both a woman and her mother. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death. You must kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal to have sexual relations with it, kill both the woman and the animal. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Why would this even be a warning? Because it happened. The Old Testament cultures around Israel are replete with examples of these divine beings that are half animal and half human. Even in Greco-Roman mythology, you know, Zeus would come down and impregnate someone disguised as a bull uh, in Egypt. There would be, uh, you know, incidents of, of lying with bulls as seen as fertility or virility, or these incantations, or all. I mean, just any kind. I'm not going to tell you to. I say, if you chose to spend five minutes on the internet, you could quickly see how this, even today, is something that people all over the world are engaged in. Human depravity is nothing new, especially in the area of sexuality. If there's a way to distort sex. Humans have not only done it, but they've also figured out how to package how to make money off of it as well. So God goes on to say, if a man marries his sister, the daughter of either his father or his mother, and they have sexual relations, it's a disgrace. They must be cut off before the eyes of their people. He has dishonored his sister and will be held responsible. Now the term the penalty is cut off from. This now, we've moved away from capital punishment now to either banishment or, or, or severing of the covenant ties where you're no longer part of the community. And some would even say it has post-life implications where you cut off from your people means even when you die, you are relegated to, uh, you don't end up where God's people end up upon death. So regardless of how this, that plays out, the penalty has moved from being uh, capital punishment now to being cut off. He says, uh, if a man lies with a woman during her monthly period, has sexual relations with her, he has exposed the source of her flow, and she has also uncovered it. Both of them must be cut off from their people. Again, this isn't an accidental, like, couple, married couple, and they're feeling amorous, and then all of a sudden, oh, I realize, no, it's my period. No, this is intentionally having sex with someone during their period, intentionally, in order to whatever you think that's going to benefit. 
whether it's you just want your sexual appetite quenched and you don't care that it's your wife or this woman's monthly period and her feelings and her health are inconsequential, or whether it's in the pagan culture surrounding that the idea of that sleeping with someone during a monthly period is, um, you know, in some way will increase future fertility or something with the blood and the mixing of blood and semen and all of this stuff that we've talked about before that's not usually lunch conversation. All of that comes into play regardless. So God's saying, no, that will cut you off from your people as well. Do not have sexual relations with the sister of either your mother or your father, for that would dishonor a close relative. Both of you will be held responsible. If a man sleeps with his aunt, he has dishonored his uncle. They will be held responsible. They will die childless. If a man marries his brother's wife, it's an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. They will be childless. So now we see God's moving from capital punishment to cutting off to what was seen as just as severe is your family lineage is being cut off now. You die childless. So the penalties are lessening in terms of their physical consequences, but they're still very grave in terms of community consequences. So he goes on to say, uh, verse 22 then, in summary, keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. That, that line's important to remember. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. When God gives Israel the promised land and drives out the Canaanites, it's not because he just likes Israel better. And it's not because he, the Canaanites, oh, too bad, you're the wrong race, you're the wrong people. It's never that. God had given them 400 years. All the way back since Genesis 15, God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. And I'm going to do it at a time when the inhabitants of the land, their wickedness has reached its full measure. It's Genesis 15, if you want to go back and read it. So, for 400 years, the wickedness of Canaan has been filling up like a, like a reservoir that's about to reach overflowing. And so that by the time Israel is ready to enter into the land, the wickedness of the Canaanites will have reached its tipping point, and that's when God's judgment will come down. And instead of like with Sodom and Gomorrah, instead of it coming down in fire, it's going to come down on this nation of rabble slaves that are actually going to drive out these mighty peoples and these mighty armies. That's going to be God's judgment this time. Instead of flood or fire, it's going to be these people coming in to take the land. All as punishment for the wickedness of the Canaanites. That's absolutely crucial to keep in mind when you're looking at those passages. When we start getting into Joshua and his conquest and all of this stuff, it's absolutely essential to keep in mind that it's God's judgment on the peoples, and it's not because of who they were, who their parents were, whether they were the right religion. No, it was because they were doing things like burning children alive and having orgies with animals and family members. That's the kind of stuff that God was saying, okay, after 400 years of this, enough. So I harp on that because it always gets forgotten when people start pointing at the Bible and calling it barbaric and how God was a xenophobic, angry, arbitrary God. It's nonsense. Verse 25, or excuse me, verse 24. So because they do all these things, I abhorred them. But I say to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourself by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. 
those which I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Now remember when we looked at the food laws, the clean and the unclean animals were symbolic of Israel and the Gentiles. So when God's saying you will distinguish between clean and unclean animals, he's, is he talking about their food? Well, yeah, but that's secondary to the whole concept of separation between Israel and their neighbors. That's what the food laws represented. That's the purpose of the food laws, was to be a daily reminder to Israel of their separateness. They were the, quote, clean animals that God had chosen from all the animals of the world that God created and loved just as much as any of the others. He called some for a specific purpose in their priestly duties, which were the clean animals. That's what he had done with Israel. Called them for his purpose to be a priestly kingdom to the rest of the, quote, animals in the world. The rest of the things that go along the earth, the rest of the birds, which is the symbolic of all of humanity. So the clean and unclean animals and the food laws have to do with Israel's identity as a sacred people set apart. That also gives us a clue for why when Jesus came and it ushers in the new covenant that brings the old to a close, the food laws are now no longer in place. Because the distinction that they signified has now been broken down in Jesus. That's why people that continue to talk more about how we got to keep these Old Testament food laws are, are missing forests for the trees. They're missing the whole purpose of those laws to begin with. And that's why the New Testament flat out says any food is unclean as long as it's received as clean with a thankful heart and the conscience doesn't continue to read it. But again, a whole other subject. So, a few more minutes to finish up. <clears throat> Verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. I've set you apart from the nations to be my own. And then it ends, verse 27, A man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them. Their blood will be on their own heads. Why is this listed last? Why does this come after? Why, not, why didn't this back up in the previous capital punishments? The chapter began with, a, with, a, with the capital punishment prescription for worship of false gods. The chapter ends almost to reinforce that with the capital punishment prescription for those who would lure Israel into worshiping false gods. That's what mediums and spiritists were. That it, was, it was all ways of communicating with the spirit realm outside of the relationship in the tabernacle, outside of the priesthood, outside of the prophet, outside of the channels by which God had revealed himself to Israel. He's saying, I've given you myself. I've given you my presence. I'm literally dwelling in your midst. I have this entire mobile home that I've set up called the tabernacle that is a mini portable Mount Sinai. You don't get more close access than that. So why then would you go run to the agent or the, the, the spokesperson of one of these other gods? And that's what mediums and spiritists were. These gods, they communicate with the underworld. Whether they were charlatans or whether they actually were in contact with real spiritual forces beyond our recognition, doesn't matter. There's probably a little bit of both, just like today. There's probably a little bit of both mixed in with that. The point is what God's saying is that's not going to be tolerated among my people. Because the minute you start tolerating that within the covenant relationship, you start ripping the covenant relationship apart. You start pulling away from devotion to the one true God. And hedging that with devotion to God and listening to these other false gods. So for the covenant people, that's not an option. 
So that's why in the New Testament church, then, when the apostles do speak out strongly and they condemn certain things, what they're condemning strongly in the New Testament is things like heretical beliefs, false doctrine, false teachers that are doing the equivalent of what these mediums and spiritists did to Israel in the Old Covenant. They're doing that in the New Covenant, coming along and giving you a new word. I got a new thing for you, brother. God revealed this to me. That doesn't go with scripture. Oh, God's doing a new thing. You hear that a lot. You hear it especially in charismatic circles. Um, and and, and that's, that's the kind of thing that, that God doesn't tolerate in his church, in the New Testament. Because he didn't tolerate among his people in the Old Testament. And so it's a stern warning. If you don't believe me, read the New Testament. Read Jude. Read books like uh, 2 Peter and others. I mean, they come down harsh on false teaching for that reason. But anyway... This chapter, we end it. Chapter 20, it's going to now move into, these were the laws for the people. Next week, it's going to look at the laws for the priests, or the regulations for the priests. Um, and there's going to be a whole lot of significance in that. But the thing to keep in mind, the key takeaway from this chapter, is God says, and we'll see this when you get to Israel entering the land. God says to Israel, listen, I'm giving you this land. But it's not because you're better. It's not because I like you better. He flat out says that over and over and over in Deuteronomy. He says, I'm giving you this land because I made a promise to Abraham that my purposes were going to be carried forth through this thing, this, this seed promise carrying forward. You're part of this seed promise. But if you break my covenant, you are no longer part of the seed promise. You will be cut off from the land, and the land will do to you what it did to the Canaanites. It will vomit you out. Now, figuratively, that's the image. It's used of somebody vomiting. It's something that makes you sick, and what do you do? You purge get it out of your system. That's what he's saying the land did to the Canaanites because of their idolatry and immorality. That's what it's going to do to Israel for their idolatry and immorality. And we see that that's what happened. But what it looks like in the real world is Israel, Canaanites were driven out by Israel. Later, Israel will be driven out by the Babylonians. So God does not arbitrarily or, or God doesn't pick and choose or take sides. God's justice is God's justice. And he applies the same standards to his people, even greater standards, some would argue, than he does to the outside, or to the nations that don't know. So this is all really, really, really important to keep in mind as you read through the Old Testament and as you read into the New Testament. But we're out of time. So have a great week. There's still some food left if you want some seconds. And um, see you next week.